Welcome to The Proletarian Contrarian, the podcast where we reevaluate bad films through a leftist perspective. I'm Nick. And I'm Lewis. Yeah, we're doing Star Wars. Yeah. Um, not only are we doing Star Wars this week, but we are doing Star Wars this whole month. Um, you might have heard of a little uh, franchise um, <clears throat> cultural milestone <clears throat> called Star Wars. Uh, any of you fans out there? Uh, and if you don't know... May is Star Wars month, because May the 4th be with you. Oh, shit. Do you understand? Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get it? <laughs> I mean, it's true. Like, like that. that's the only reason they chose it as this month, and that's why Celebration is held in this month. And um, I don't know. Now that Disney owns the keys to the kingdom, it is like a bona fide. I thought the Celebration thing happened in April, like just happened in April. Mm, yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, that's mm, owned. That's <laughs> that's true. But we're claiming May because um, the true fans know that May is Star Wars month. Right. Yeah. Disney uh, is a fake fan. Yes. Uh, forever and always. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we'll get into it in the later episodes this month. Um, but we we kind of have mixed feelings on the whole Disney era of Star Wars. Um, not not that it has much to do with the later episodes we have planned, but it, it certainly has a lot to do with this episode, because for this episode, we're focusing on Star uh, Solo, a Star Wars story, which came out in 2018. Um, I was told this was actually uh, an episode uh, about the, the Ewok cartoon, uh, the, yes. the two the two like episodes. I, I actually I am <laughs> ill prepared for this episode. Sorry, I don't I don't know how if we can continue. <laughs> Yeah, um I mean I could I could give you the translation to the to the Yub Nub song and what it means and the cultural significance that it has for Ewoks. Um but yeah, I remember that show too. I I've seen I've seen a few episodes back in the day. Yeah, I had on VHS. I think it was just a straight to video like two to three episode show. I think there were a number of episodes that were released because they had also released that droids cartoon, which follows R2D2 and C3PO. Oh yeah. Um, in, in their sequence of like owners in leading up to, to Luke Skywalker. Um, but yeah, I don't folks, we're, we're not going to do, we're not going to do the Ewok adventures. Um, we thought about doing Ewok, uh, caravan of courage in its sequel. Ooh, um, yeah, yeah. We don't know. We might. We might not, folks. I don't <laughs> know. Yeah, no. Um, but for this episode, we are focused on the the redheaded stepchild of the Star Wars universe, the, the Star Wars live action filmography, um, Solo, which was released in 2018. As I said, directed by Ron Howard, um, starring Eldon Ehrenreich, Woody Harrelson, Amelia Clark, Donald Glover, Thandi Newton. Paul Bettany, and uh, featuring John Favreau. Oh yeah, he he does the voice for for Rio, the eight-armed little alien, right? Yeah, yeah, the monkey alien. Yeah, I was uh, mm-hmm. the whole time. I've seen the movie twice, and both times I'm like, who does that voice? It's so familiar. Who's that mm-hmm. guy? And then it just yeah, it's John Favreau. I assume yeah, he only got sense. the role because of his uh, Iron Man directing credits, and uh, you know, playing Happy Hogan in the Disney films. 
Well, he he's the showrunner for the Mandalorian TV show that's coming out. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. I guess that's also. Yes. But that's all. That's all because he he directed Iron Man. That's it. It's nepotism. Mm, yeah. Disney nepotism, folks. Oh, for sure. It's. it's I bad. mean, it's just. It's, like, yeah. It's obviously that's just how Hollywood works in general. But it's it is bad. Yeah. Fucking stupid. So, uh, Lewis, what's your um, relationship with the Star Wars mythos? G- give us give us a quick rundown. Well, in nineteen ninety. Six. <laughs> I don't know. When were okay, they released in theaters? Like re-released I, I, in theaters? Well, at first, I thought you were going to say, it all began when I was born in 1990. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I um, mean, basically, they, honestly, it's been since birth. But when were they re-released? Um, they, I believe A New Hope was re-released, the special edition, in 97. Okay, so 1997. That's when. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay. That's when this all <laughs> nice. started. Uh, I saw all three in theaters. Uh, I don't know if they were back to back or like if they were year after year after year. I don't remember what that was mm-hmm. like, but I remember like at least seeing them all once in theaters, then getting the VHS and like okay. my grandparents even had a copy of the VHS when I was over at their house. I didn't have to travel with it. I could just watch it there. And then like all my right. friends had it and then all the merchandising. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was, it's been a very long time. Yeah, um, similar for me. Um, I I remember watching Star Wars, the the unspecial editions. Um, We had VHS copies of those. Um, I I don't remember like distinctly watching them before the special editions came out because I was pretty young. But I I do remember having them in the house. And I do do remember the, the theater releases for the special editions. I do remember... The lead up in the release of the prequel trilogy, which I really liked as a kid. I remember um, the weird kind of dead era between the prequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy. I remember being really into the expanded universe. I remember being kind of embarrassed that I was really into the expanded universe. And then I remember the sequel trilogy coming out. And I remember it's it's been this thing that has like tracked me, like like paced behind me, like like this predatory figure in the back of my mind for my whole life. And um, yeah, Star Star Wars is a weird cultural artifact. Um, There's nothing that we can say about it that hasn't been said innumerable times already, but hopefully we can bring our own personal idiosyncratic uh, spin to it, which um, is, is what we hope to do for the, for the following month uh, for the following, for the episodes that come throughout the following month. Yeah, actually, uh, don't undersell our analysis of this film. I don't think anybody has yes. the same analysis as us. That's true. We're fucking mavericks in terms of this film. Yeah, <laughs> no, that, that that's that's legit. Um, I I lurk on a number of Star Wars forums. I'm not ashamed to admit that. Uh, Stardestroyer.net uh, name drop there. <laughs> but I I've read a fair amount about this movie in. I, I think between the two of us, we, we have a really good, um, a fairly original uh, thesis on this movie that we can get into. Um, so yeah, no, actually, everybody has to guess it. That's that's a, it's, <laughs> we're just going to talk about like what Star Wars toys we had right now, yes. and then, like you just have to guess from that what our analysis of this film is. Okay, so I will I will drop in this little anecdote here. Um, when I was like eight years old. I went with my dad to the local Walmart and we ran into this nerd 
in the Star Wars aisle. <laughs> it was you from the future. Yes, it was it was me. It was me coming from the future. And um, he he gave us the name of a website where we could order like figures from that weren't released in stores. And I I got a Bomar Monk brain uh, spider droid that's seen in Jabba's palace action figure. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Cause like I had to go through this like underground, like geo cities website to get it. And um, wow. so that, that's the level of dedication I'm bringing to uh, this, this episode for our fans here. Yeah. So that was future you uh, making kid you by this figure so that you can then sell it later and become like a millionaire, but that didn't pan out and you, you're, you don't have that money and we make a podcast. <laughs> It's 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 in the bottom of a Tupperware container somewhere in New Hampshire right now. So who knows? Um, so yeah, a Solo, a Star Wars story. This is the second of the Star Wars anthology films, the the non trilogy films. Um, it has the third lowest Rotten Tomatoes rating at seventy percent, um, behind Episode One at fifty four percent, and Episode Two at sixty five percent. Which is fucking bullshit because Episode One is a much better film than Episode Two. Um, Ooh, oh, shots fired! We, shots fired! We will not dwell on that for the moment. No, we can't. I, yeah, it's just it's. I actually learned that this fact uh, today that it was the third lowest Rotten Tomatoes rating. And you know, honestly, for films that are past the year like two thousand or before the year two thousand, like one or two, it's it's murky territory. Honestly, you know, mm-hmm. like who's yeah. to say if. Uh, half of the reviews for the original trilogy are rotten reviews, are uh, you know fresh reviews. I don't know how they how they rate that you know for reviews that like aren't even online anymore. So so many of these are just like you know newspaper reviews that have been yeah. digitized that you can't even if you even like click on the links on Rotten Tomatoes they're broken half the time and and some and even that even for like the 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 prequel films like if you go now and you try to find mm-hmm. some of those reviews half the links are broken you have to go to like you know the way way back machine or whatever um so really this is just me ranting about how fucking hard it is to find a review for an older film on rotten tomatoes uh yes. please if someone out there is like uh, a media librarian please send us a message and how i can find these reviews easier uh for older any, episodes if we have any media librarians out there in our, our audience we will give you a whole episode we will let you have the floor but we will like use that use this platform just like as an opportunity for you to talk about your your pet peeve but we we would appreciate that um that expertise if we have any anybody out there yeah but back to these rotten tomatoes ratings they're bullshit but this yeah, is this is some real bullshit though. Seventy percent for this movie. So seventy percent is actually the lowest you can get. Um, well, it's it's the highest top out for just the fresh rating. Um, mm. Like seventy one percent would be certified fresh. So, so like seventy one to a hundred percent is certified such, fresh. So- Oh, 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 actually, we're we're fresh. We're not certified fresh because we only got a seven. Like what the? F- yeah, these cutesy little bullshit like terms that are like they're they're specifically allocated to diff like different specific numerical designations. That's such bullshit. Fucking film criticism is the stupidest thing in the world. It really is. But you know, I just thought of this for like the really old uh, films, like. 
basically anything before like the internet or before like you know the ubiquity of the internet where it's it's murky territory in terms of like what yeah. re- fresh and like uh, rotten really means they should be called heirloom tomatoes oh <laughs> hell yes that's a it's <laughs> a that's a spicy meatball yeah, <laughs> racism against italians is good <laughs> So back to Star yes, Wars. I don't know. What are we talking about? Oh, that's right. It's so low a Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes is bullshit. Yeah. Um, this movie is much better than The Force Awakens. Um, <laughs> oh, JJ. Phil Lord and Christopher Miller were originally tapped to direct this film. Double um, tap. Double tap. <laughs> <laughs> originally, originally, they were double tapped out of this. Yeah, they were. They, they really were. Lord and Miller were eventually uh, double tapped to film this movie. Um, I know that they had had some kind of success with like 21 Jump Street, like these weird kind of like off kilter comedies. And the Lego um, movie. Oh, and the Lego movie too? Yeah, they, they did the Lego movie. Yeah. But they were fired or they were they were all but fired. It, it was like a oh, Disney films and Lord and Miller have reached an agreement and we're parting ways amicably kind of bullshit. Um, but yeah, they, they had they had accomplished four and a half months of shooting which was like 75% of the entire goddamn film. And Disney just like unceremoniously or or as ceremoniously as possible um, rejected them and brought on Ron Howard, who is his career speaks for itself. He, everyone knows who Ron Howard is. Um, And he, he only filmed apparently for three and a half weeks and then um, five weeks of reshoots, which is an odd uh an odd situation to go into this one yeah it's um it's also crazy that yeah he gets the directorial credit my understanding is that uh phil lord and christopher miller were just okay with receiving an executive producer credit but i it's just it's got to be strange knowing that you you did like less than 25 percent of the work (laughs) and like you get this credit for directing it um but, you know, I, I mean, I, I think uh, Ron Howard did the best he could uh, here. You know, I, as as hard as I am on Ron Howard a lot of the times, I, I think um, he is kind of a, a, a stodgy kind of like Americana director. Um, mm-hmm. I do think like the Americana mythos that he can create, um, that does kind of parlay pretty well into this film or just like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the Americana mythos, uh, parlaying into like star Wars mythos and just the idea of like myth building, you know, I think he's, right. he's good at doing that. So it makes sense in hindsight that he was, he was tapped, uh, for this, but still it's, it's, it's just strange to think that he made this movie. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's no one better that I could imagine, um, that you could pick than Ron Howard to direct what is basically, Star Wars meets American Graffiti, um, which is which is how I would describe the spirit of this movie in in one brief sentence. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we have a review here from uh, Matt Stoller Sites of uh, RogerEbert.com. Uh, I want to mention that I once I once got in a very uh, short Twitter beef with uh, Matt Stoller Zeitz. I don't even remember what it was about, <laughs> but whatever it is, I I agree with you. I stand <laughs> I stand my co-host. Whatever it was, 
I admonished him for something. I, I feel like it was about like um, that big story about um, the league family who owns the Alma draft houses and like sexual assault. Oh. Um, and I think uh, Matt Stoller-Zeiss, like I, I think he just had like a, a poorly worded tweet Um but like he agreed with me for the most part. It was just like, it was an oddly worded tweet. And he was like, oh, okay, I'll change that. And like, yeah, I didn't mean to blah, blah, blah. I don't know. But, um, okay. well, he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's actually, he's a good critic. Actually, he, um, yeah, yeah. his, uh, his work on, um, like Sopranos, um, criticism and theory is actually pretty good. Um, okay. one of, one of the cool. better for sure. Um, unfortunately he also writes a lot about Madman, and that show yeah. seems stupid. Um, yeah, it does. but back to his review. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he says as unnecessary prequels go solo, a star Wars story isn't bad. It's not great either though. And despite spirited performances, knockabout humor, and a few surprising or arousing bits, there's something a bit too programmed about the whole thing. It has certain marks to hit, and it makes absolutely sure you know that it's hitting them. Everything that you expect to see visualized in Solo, based on your experience with previously stated Star Wars mythology, gets served up on silver platter, from young Han Solo's first meeting with Chewbacca to Han winning the Millennium Falcon in a card game from its original owner, Lendo Calrissian, and making the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs, to the fact that Wookiees hate to lose at three-dimensional chess and are strong enough for people's arms from their sockets. We also get to see what some of our favorites were like when they were younger. Donald Glover's Lando walks off with the movie. It's fan service of a high order. Um, so, so yeah, your your buddy your buddy Matt is canceled for not knowing that <laughs> quote unquote three dimensional chess is actually called Dejaric. Um, I mean, I appreciate that he's into Sopranos, but I, I can't let that transgression go. That's fair. Um, I do think one line that he has, I think it's literally the next sentence. I just wanted to highlight. Uh, he says about the film, it's checklist mythology, but thankfully served up with enough panache to make the trip engaging. So I don't necessarily think that's correct, but I, I do want to say that this, um, this is a, a popular sentiment amongst film reviewers. Um, mm-hmm. I, I read numerous reviews uh, before we recorded and yeah, most of them just kind of say, Hey, this film is uh, a popcorn film that uh, checks all the necessary origin story boxes um, based on the audience's understanding of star Wars mythology and what it expects. Um, but it's nothing deep or meaningful, yada, yada. Um, so it, the, the reviews weren't like glib or dismissive, which, I initially thought most of them would be because, you know, on face value, the idea of a a, a Han Solo origin story is, is stupid. Uh, Yeah. It's (laughs) like, why would you do this? And I actually had no interest in seeing this, but a friend of mine put it on when we were at a party and I was like, damn, this party is fine, but this movie's better. (laughs) Damn. That those are some good parties that I'm not invited to where (laughs) we're, Random ass Star Wars content is thrown on screen and people bond over that. It's great. Hell yeah. Um, what's interesting about Han in particular as a as a subject for a film <clears throat> is that there had been a number of um, expanded universe 
books, comic books, um, RPG supplements about him specifically, and, and this movie pulls from them pretty... I don't want to say it, it pulls from them extensively, but it pulls from them not unnoticeably. You know, like, he, he's everyone's favorite character in the first one. He He's, like, the cool guy as opposed to, like, dweeby Luke. <laughs> the idea of, like, a Han Solo movie reads as very, very early internet fan speculation. Um, but they, they kind of do pull it off. They this movie's better than than it like had any right to be and um as we'll get into it's surprisingly thematically coherent which kind of threw me for a loop when when we were first thinking about this one <laughs> yeah like i said when i randomly saw it um i was like you know what i was going to watch this shit anyway like fuck it it's on netflix i don't have to pay for it mm-hmm. um but yeah like eh, basically right past maybe the first act or so i was like this this film has like actual themes and messages outside of like just you know like pseudo theology bullshit uh which is a lot Mm -hmm. of star wars Mm -hmm. um it like yeah it felt actually like a lived in universe for one of the first times for me Mm -hmm. I guess that can be our lead-in to to the to the big stuff that we liked, like um, the empire as as an institution, as a government, as a as a force um, outside of individuals. It it really feels palpable for the first time in like any Star Wars movie. You know, it was interesting. So um, the the first uh, act of this film is an introduction to Han and um, his girlfriend Kira, played by uh, Amelia Clark, on their home planet of Corellia, which is kind of just um, this backwater. Um, kind of seems almost like a manufacturing hub of some kind. What is it? Because I know you know it. <laughs> <laughs> In the original lore Corellia was like space california like like it was literally like the, a planet that was like george lucas's childhood in california like it was like lush green hills and like coasts and everything and and space jockeys but in this arguably more interesting in this version it's like literally the dry dock planet it's like where they build star destroyers and stuff right because han uh later in the film has a line where he uh mm-hmm. discusses how his father uh well his father built the the corellian the yt series of the y- yeah which is the millennium falcon right yt 1300 corellian light freighter yeah oh my god why do i do this <laughs> why did i sign up for this <laughs> so so yeah it's yep. it's 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 like a it's just a dock planet basically a manufacturing uh like a naval manufacturing planet mm-hmm uh so yeah so the empire um i mean they have control over it like they have control over most planets uh in Mm -hmm. the galaxy um we're introduced to the empire at um this this like checkpoint basically um yeah where uh, kira and han are trying to escape the planet by bribing um uh just a, a functionary basically at this checkpoint um, and I thought that was a really good scene too. They were, they're trying yeah. to bribe, um, this, this one, um, just kind of administrative, uh, you know, empire, uh, pen pusher. Kind of yeah, thing. exactly. And, um, 
they have this. So uh, the big, um, I'm not, not exactly sure we can consider it a MacGuffin, but um, it is uh, a plot element is this, uh, this substance called coaxium, um, which is, I guess, is it a fuel? What is it? It's, it's hyperspace fuel. Hyperspace fuel. Which, which interestingly uh, ties in very much to The Last Jedi, now that I think of it. Um, not, not interestingly, but like it, it's, it's interesting from a meta perspective how like you can see how interconnected the, the writing and, and the, the planning of these films are. Like hyperspace fuel is a very heavy plot element in The Last Jedi, and it also is in Solo. Oh, yeah, that's right. It is like, it's why they go... Uh, to like Canto Blight and then where they, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, in The Last Jedi, that is. That's why Rose and Finn go to Canto Blight. Right. Okay. And, and the whole conflict, basically. And the whole, really, yeah. No, exactly. And for the whole film, more or less, for their for their plot line. Um, so, yeah. And it's interesting, too, that this, that coaxium, like this, this, this resource is, is a, is such a big plot element in both of these films. You know, we don't, see that a lot in film like the idea of like a a resource you know especially in this world that we live in of climate disaster based on extraction capitalism um like we don't it's not something that is uh put at the forefront of a lot of Mm -hmm. narratives so um yeah it's interesting folks and we'll talk about the extraction capitalism element of this film later um it is it is pretty prominent in the third act uh, so yeah, where were we? Something about a checkpoint, coaxium, Just blah blah blah. The the, pr- the presence of the empire, um, and they they try to bribe the official and and the the abuse of police state uh, tendencies of the empire. Yeah. So the empire as police state is is pretty prominent in this film. Uh, it's also interesting in this scene right after uh, Han and Kira get. Uh, split up by the by the checkpoint uh, that Han immediately just goes to an Empire recruiting office uh, mm-hmm. to become uh, he wants to become a pilot but um, we see in the next scene that he becomes uh, a foot soldier well they they do say that he he does get into the pilot academy on Carita which is another EU reference. Um, they they do say that he he becomes a pilot briefly, but he gets kicked out, and that's how he gets demoted to like grunt service. Right, because there is a, a three years later jump. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I do. I do wish we had seen Han Solo in in Imperial Flight Academy. That would have been cool. But another just side note. I'm, I'm going to be doing this the entire episode, folks. I'm sorry. But uh, when don't when be sorry, the, I'm not don't, sorry. I'm don't apologize it. to them. You have to apologize to me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lewis, for for the side note. But um, on the Corellian Imperial checkpoint, we see um a recruitment ad that Hans, that catches Han Solo's eye, and they play the Imperial March, um, implying that the Imperial March, um, the the John Williams Darth Vader theme song, is the in universe actual uh, anthem of the Empire, which had been hinted at in earlier expanded universe materials, but they never actually said it. So it's nice to see that like become a part of the canon. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't even put that together. It's a, it's, it's a diegetic example of a, a metatextual piece of music. So, uh, for, so this episode isn't completely worthless, just Star Wars fan wank. Lewis, what, it, what is diegetic sound or, or diegetic material of a film? Yeah. So diegesis is, um, 
sound or actions that are happening within the actual narrative of the film. So diegetic sound would be sound that the characters in the story can hear, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of uh, this uh, specific example, it is uh, sound over a loudspeaker that, you know, the character of Han Solo is hearing. Um, later on, most other aspects of the score are uh, non-diegetic, meaning that, you know, they are not being heard by the characters in the movie. They're being heard by us, the audience. So, yeah, that, that was a cool little cool little aspect that I liked. Um, so, as Lewis was saying, when Han Solo, when we return to him three years later, after the time skip, he is on the planet Nimban. He is, um, he is an Imperial Army officer. He's not a stormtrooper. Because stormtroopers are supposed to be the elite troops of the empire, kind of like uh, our own real world, our own real world marines. Like they're they're the elite, whereas the imperials have uh, ground troops, which are just like the cannon fodder. And um, this little sequence on Mimban is actually really interesting because in it, Han meets. We're, we're kind of shown that Han doesn't like to take orders. He doesn't like to be just like a faceless cog in the machine. And um, the whole terror of, like, warfare, it really comes through in this and, and the, the senselessness of it and the, the inherent um, imperial colonial uh, purpose of this kind of war really comes through. Yeah, it's interesting. At one point, there's, like, a general or somebody who's... Um you know, barking out orders to Han Solo and the other grunt troops about, you know, we have to, uh, we have to take this area of the planet. We have to, you know, fight the hostiles. And, and Han says, uh, aren't we the hostiles? Aren't we the ones invading this planet? Um, mm-hmm. so even a kind of on the nose line like that, like you don't hear that in, in the star Wars, you know, yeah. film franchise. Um, I will, give a brief uh i will stand for the prequels and i will give a brief little uh preview as to what i want to say but i do think the prequels are good in that regard they wear their politics in their sleeves just like this film does that's fair and i think that's actually why most people don't like the prequels that it is it is such you know palace intrigue and and these like Mm -hmm. geopolitical um you know uh tit for tats um well they're a bunch of nerf herders (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah i mean the, the whole mimban sequence is great um it shows the empire as basically like the space version of rome like they are the dominant government and they will tolerate subservient governments as long as they don't rise up against them but if they do rise up against the empire then the empire is going to squash them down which is what we see on, on mimban it's also worth noting that um this this scene this scene of warfare um is is more of uh, like a like a World War One type yes. um, scene, basically. You know, there are trenches. Um, there, there's just more like chaotic violence happening around them. It's less of like a, um, you know, with a lot of the other outside of maybe, you know, the more like guerrilla Vietnam uh, warfare of uh, of you know the Ewoks. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of the other ones are just kind of like even colonial era where it's just like people line up over here, people line up over here right. and they shoot at each other. Um, so it's, it's an interesting, uh, kind of, uh, you know, alternative. 
Yeah. And um, after that battle scene, Han meets um, Tobias Beckett and Val and Rio, who are a group of thieves that are trying to steal um, an AT all-terrain walker um, hauler ship so that they can use that ship in their train heist that they're planning. And it's also where Han meets his best friend slash dog slash cuddle buddy uh, Chewbacca. Yeah, it was. It's funny, you know. I think I read the whole plot before I saw the movie, but maybe there was just <laughs> there was a you know um, quite some time between reading the plot and actually seeing it. Because again, I really didn't think I was ever going to watch this movie. Um, but yeah, I was I was like surprised. I was like, whoa, what beast are they going to feed him to? Because that's what they when Han is insubordinate, they're like, all right, we're going to feed him to the beast. And I was like, oh, I wonder what the beast is. And then I was like, oh shit, it's Chewbacca. <laughs> It was good. It was it was charming. Um, I do think it was kind of dumb that Han just like knew how to speak Sherlock. Like he he could just like he could he could speak a few phrases in the Wookiee language. Um, but I mean, whatever. It was it was plot contrivance. Yeah, it's it's interesting though because then he he only speaks uh, Sherlock to him for maybe like a few minutes, and then he just goes back to English. Yeah, um, yeah, right. That, I mean, I guess like. Okay, so Chewbacca can understand it, but then that's just a way of you know building this camaraderie. I, I mean, I get, I don't know. Yeah, that that was a clumsy bit. I, I wish they had shown like Han and Chewie learning how to understand each other more. Yeah, and like throughout the film, but it's it's a minor complaint. Um, and so from Mimban, uh, Beckett, Val, and Rio bring Han and Chewie to. Oh God, what is this other planet called? Uh, Vambor One. Um, and on Van Boer, they do the train heist, which is a really cool set piece in my opinion. But in between Mimban and Van Boer, we have one of the best scenes in this film, which is the Han Solo chewy shower scene. Oh yeah, <laughs> they have it. So apparently this military class, uh, ATST chicken walker transport vehicle has a, a shower inside of it which is strange and, and Han and Chewie shower together, which is really romantic. Yeah. That was crazy. But no, wait, they, no, wait, it's not on the chicken walker. It's don't they, um, they steal some ship. No, the, the ship that they steal is a Walker transport ship. Oh, it, okay. cause they, they show, they show that in the Mimban trench warfare scene, they show that type of ship drop off an ATSD and then fly. Wow. See, if I just was a, a better Star Wars fan, this all would come naturally to me. But I'm learning so much, folks. Learning so much. And I've known Nick for about 10 years. And I just... Learn much to have <laughs> you, my young Padawan. <laughs> Literally every conversation we have, I learn something new about Star Wars. I tell my other friends, I'm like, I know this guy, Nick, who can tell you the race and language and home planet of every oh, character in Star Wars. <laughs> in every shot of the films and i'm not wrong i could have been a surgeon if i had had devoted this level of pedantry to something useful i could have i could have done so much more with my life anyway they shower and then they get to vambor right and they they have that cool train heist sequence all all the all five of our thieves have to come together and they have a very specific plan involving the the ship that they stole involving the specific skills that all of them have and the way that they almost succeed but still fail, um, it it feels believable. It feels like well thought out and kind of cool. 
Yeah, you know, it's um, it's more interesting both the, this scene and then uh, a later scene on Kessel uh, where the spice mines are. Um, there, these two basically heist scenes um, are like infinitely more interesting than the heist scene in Rogue One. E- exponentially so i think they just they just set up like what they have to do really well you know like the the setup of the heist is what makes the the functions of going through the heist and failing throughout um you know different stages of it interesting and Mm -hmm. rogue one really didn't set up that heist well like you kind of get a feeling of what it's going to look like but um, even just with a few lines of dialogue, they really set up well what they have to do with the train heist. Um, yeah. And even just like during my first watch through, but especially during the second watch through, um, you do see more and you do understand more of this train heist than like, I mean, literally you can watch Rogue One a billion times and like it still just makes no sense and it's just total garbage. Yeah. Um, and, and the cool thing about the train heist is it's it's a very kind of old timey classic Americana thing. Like like a stagecoach robbery. But on a Or like an train, actual train robbery. <laughs> yeah, like like a like a like a stagecoach train robbery, but like okay. on a okay, magnetic yes. train that's thousands of meters above the ground and they're trying to steal like space fuel and they're fighting off like hovering bike jet laser jockeys it it's a cool it it's a very classic star wars blend of um old school americana and and what the 70s imagined the future would be like yeah so during this scene um as nick said everybody splits up and does a different function um, val played by thandy newton has to blow a portion of the tracks um she so she goes ahead um to like I guess right before the train gets into the like station or warehouse, basically she has to blow the tracks. Yeah. She she's her job is to blow the tracks um, before the train can, can get to security and get to safety. And so that the rest of the train can fall away once they sever the transport car um, from the rest of the train. Right. So uh, Rio, the monkey played by uh, John Favreau is the pilot of the ship uh, and Han, Chewie, and uh, Tobias Beckett, Woody Harrelson have to uh, connect these cables from the ship to the train. Uh, they they don't want to like trip these sensors um, on the tracks because then these Viper droids will come. Um, and uh, Thandi Newton Val has to uh, make sure that doesn't happen as well because shocker you know, um, it is tripped these sensors. So she has to fight off these droids. Um, and then thrown into the mix with all this is a rival, uh, crime gang, the Enfys Nest and, and, um, I think they're called Cloud Riders, the, the swoop gang that Nest leads. Yeah. They they tried. They're marauders. I mean, that's what they're referred to, but I think you're right. I think the cloud gang is their name. They try to steal the, the, the prize from underneath uh, Beckett's gang. Yeah, and they're they're really interesting uh, looking crew. Um, they have kind of like these, um, you know, they have technology. They they have like these speeder bikes, these like flying speeder bikes. Um, 
I believe they're called I believe I, b- I believe they're called swoop bikes if they can fly at that altitude with their repulsor lifts. Yes, swoop, <laughs> swoop de poop de doop or whatever that kind of yes. song is. <laughs> the Kanye, the Kanye West guy. <laughs> um, but then they also have like more like uh, almost like tribal gear you know they have actual like body armor but then they have like feathers and like grass shoots and melee weapons and stuff and yeah yeah. it's so they're they're an interesting um just they have an interesting aesthetic in general it was kind kind of like a hybrid between like general grievous and like the mandalorians kind of um the whole get up i thought so yeah in this scene it's just it's well constructed um Two of the characters of uh, the Han Solo Beckett gang are, are killed. Um, Rio is killed by um, members of Emphan uh, Nest's Marauders, and um, Val has to uh, blow herself up to detonate the bridge because she couldn't get away in time. And uh, I thought that was interesting. Uh, because we do get other members of this gang later who, who uh, we'll, we'll talk about soon. Um, but it has this, this quality um, very much like, not like the uh, Suicide Squad movie, but like the old Suicide, yes. Suicide Squad comics where um, these missions are, you know, the eponymous suicide missions. Uh, mm-hmm. there is, there's a goal. They know going in that they will probably die. Uh, and here two of these characters who you know are set up more or less to be main characters of this film i didn't expect them both to die so quickly i mean especially dandy newton's like a you know she's a well-known actress um and like i thought rio was cool they are like really well fleshed out characters um but yeah so it's just uh it's interesting to have um this yeah the the kind of like precarity of this uh you know criminal enterprise um just to be on display throughout this scene and, you know, really throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, that kind of like crime story technique of presenting fairly unique characters and then just like killing them off unceremoniously. It, it was effective here and it, it shows how, how ruthless and how unforgiving life on the fringe, like the fringe of the, of the Star Wars universe can be. Um, squeeze between the margins of this like authoritarian dictatorship uh, of the empire and, and the rebels fighting them fighting them from the sidelines and then right in between is like how these people have to eke out a living making the missions that they go on and making the quests they, that they go on that much more dangerous and that much more lethal really sold that element yeah and that ties in nicely to um kind of the next few scenes of the film so um we are introduced to the crimson dawn crime syndicate um after this botched heist because um well we didn't mention this but it is a botched heist uh they they don't actually get the coaxium um out of the out of the train uh it just explodes on the side of a mountain um and uh they were doing this this heist not for themselves but for the crimson dawn uh syndicate for a specific lieutenant uh named dryden voss played by uh paul bettany um interesting little tidbit uh this character was originally played by michael k williams uh of the wire and then uh omar and then uh yeah he just had to like drop out 
after they started doing reshoots, he just he couldn't fit in his schedule. So yeah, he he was gonna play like a lion alien, like a puma lion alien or something. Um, and and this is something Lewis picked up on. I didn't notice this, but some some of the guards, some of Dryden Boss's uh, security force, do look like that, and and that that's probably what he was gonna look like. Um, but yeah, he couldn't make it for reshoots, and so they completely cut him out and just stuck in Paul Bettany to replace him, which is fucking crazy. Yeah, it's weird. Um, so Dryden Voss just looks like Paul Bettany, but with like a bunch of scars that kind of like flare up when he's angry. And I kind of think that might have been like a like an homage to like Kay Williams and his gigantic scar down his head. Like, I don't mm. know, maybe, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know. They're like, oh, we can't get Michael K. Williams, so we'll just put a bunch of scars on this white guy. <laughs> Yeah, okay. But yeah, Paul Bettany, um Dryden Boss is, is kind of an interesting character. He he's like this faux posh criminal. Like like he thinks he's like really like set, like sophisticated and suave and like he's high upper class and everything. Um but every time he gets pissed off, the 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 scars on his face get all flushed and he just like murders people. And um it's it's heavy-handed like all sour stuff is, but it it really shows like the 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 fragility of the decadence of of organized crime and how how like squalid it really is beneath beneath the glittering surface. Yeah, and as Nick was touching upon uh, in reference to the empire and you know these criminal organizations um, working uh, within the margins of you know this um, gigantic galactic uh, force. Um, this is uh, I think this is the 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 real thesis and, and and thematic thrust of this movie is um, crime during wartime. I mean, even the opening text of this film, you know, we, we don't get the crawl, but, um, and we don't get, you know, uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but that kind of text, um, the usual, you know, light blue kind of translucent text, it says, uh, it, it, it begins with, it was a lawless time. And then it talks about uh, the different crime syndicates and Karelia. So yeah, this this is something that we see in the real world as well. The idea of criminal syndicates, criminal underworlds, uh, gangsters uh, flourishing in times of war um, and under like fascist states, you know, um, and I'm not a historian. Uh, I did some <laughs> quick Googling and I, you know, just thought, just, you know, made some tenuous connections in my head as well. So uh, <laughs> I, w- I will say that I am a Star Wars historian. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> he has that on his business cards. Um, but yeah, so you think of like Operation Underworld during World War II, like the U.S. hired uh, okay. unofficially members of like the mafia and Jewish gangs in New okay. York to like patrol like seaports and to quash like uh, labor strikes during wartime, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. So that's like, that's the government ally allying with criminals, which there's some mention later that like Crimson Dawn uh, has allied with the empire um, on different planets. And in the other Star Wars movies, like when the Empire outsources work to bounty hunters like Boba Fett and Bosk and IG-88, um, it literally contracts hired guns to go after the people that it's pursuing. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then 
what I think is more relevant to like this movie, just the idea that, you know, um, crime is given a wide berth during wartime, um, is, is stuff like, you know, if you think of, um, if you think really, if you just look at like any wartime destabilized country, like criminal syndicates have flourished, like, during the London Blitz, like there were black markets to get like ration goods and luxury goods. And like, that's how gangsters made, you know, a killing. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at like, even like modern day, like Syria, you know, like criminal gangs. Slave markets in Libya. Slave markets in Libya. Like these things happen under like either just totally destabilized areas uh, or yeah. places where there is some kind of fascist authoritarian government. Um, but it's interesting in the context of this movie as well, because if you, if you think of the empire, the empire is sending its fighters to Minban. It's sending its fighters to the reaches of the galaxy. So if you're sending all of your, you know, uh, basically like police forces away and external and like internally criminal syndicates like Crimson Dawn, can just yeah. do whatever the fuck they want, you know, like they're not, they're not the, uh, they're not the priority. Sure. Yeah. And, um, when, when you first mentioned this, this read of the movie, cause, cause you watched it, I think the day before that I did when, when we watched it again to catch up for this episode, that idea of like criminal enterprise flourishing as a direct consequence of superpowers going to war. I immediately thought of catch 22, um, that classic anti, anti-war book where um being a coward being like running away from the the wars of of the superpowers is presented as as a virtue and in profiting i i guess to a lesser degree profiting off these wars like there's a character who who literally sets up like a side market uh, like like a side black market um by selling army rations and shit um that that kind of opportunity, individual opportunity, like that kind of personal escape to freedom, is presented as very much a virtue, as opposed to like the standard red badge of courage kind of nihilistic, fatalistic um, march towards death for like at at, at the whims of um, at the whims of a colonizer. Um, given the choice between the two only one of them truly is honorable and only one of them truly is more moral and ethical. Yep. So what we're saying folks is be gay, do crime. <laughs> yes. <laughs> be crime, do gay. <laughs> um, you know, like we said, there was a shipper scene, you know, there was the Han Solo, Chewy shipper scene. And oh my God. We haven't even got to fucking Lando. We haven't even got to Lando yet. <laughs> oh my God. This episode is going to be like two hours long. Anyway. Um, <laughs> So yeah, yeah, blah, 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 all this highfalutin historical and literature references. Star Wars, solo Star Wars film is, is an anti-war masterpiece. Anyway, after Dryden Voss um, hires Beckett and Han and Chewie to, he gives them one more chance to go at the Coaxium, but Han runs into Kira, his girlfriend from Corellia again, and she is like completely transformed. She's like well-dressed and she's well-spoken and she she can manipulate people and all that stuff but she is sent along with them as like insurance by Voss because there, there's some kind of relationship between Kira and Voss it's never really specified what it is if it's romantic or whatever but they're very close 
and um, he trusts her to a degree. And he also wants greater like control over over Beckett and Han, and that's why she's sent along on their on their Quaxian quest. Yeah, so this is um, the setup for the next like kind of one or two, two or three action set pieces, more or less. Um, it is setting up the um, spice mines of Kessel um, mm-hmm. because there's unrefined coaxium there. Um, they they get to Kessel by way of Lando Calrissian, of yes. course. Um, they don't have a ship at this point. Well, they, they don't have a ship specifically fast enough to get the unrefined coaxium to a refinery before it breaks down. Right. Yeah, that is... Um, that is the um, kind of like a time bomb situation yeah. going on in the plot. Um, unrefined coaxium is volatile. It will explode if it is not refined. Um, so yeah. they have to get the fastest ship um, they can they can get their hands on. Lando Calrissian uh, had some relationship with Kira, or they knew each other. It's not mm-hmm. uh, again. It's not really um, you know explained. But um, doesn't need to be. Doesn't need to be. You know, they they explain like enough shit in this movie, like how Han Han Solo gets his name. <laughs> oh my! They explain how. That is the biggest thing I dislike about this movie. Like, we don't need to know why Han's last name is Solo. We don't need to know why Lando pronounces Han's name differently, which he does in Empire Strikes Back, and they explain why in this movie. Right. We don't. We don't need to know like all like how Han gets his specific blaster, his DL forty four blaster, but we we sure as shit learn we we learn all that stuff. I don't know. It's yeah. it's um it's uh it's a little much those those little those plot beats, but yeah, you know the the Lando scene is great. Um, just yeah, Lando's the- character in general, Donald Glover does a great job. Um, they go to. I don't know the name of the planet. Do you remember the name of the planet? I think it's still on Vambor One. Oh, okay. So because because Envis Nest watches them leave in the Falcon. That's right, and they put a tracker on the Falcon. Yes. So I think it's I think it's still on Vambor One, but that is where they have the the Sebek, uh game where they Han tries to win the Falcon from Lando, but Lando's a cheat, and so Han can't beat him. But they still get aboard the Falcon, and they convince Lando to come with them for a share of the profit. So on to Kessel uh, after this. First, before we get to Kessel, we should talk about the weirdest character in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Leet. L337. L- yeah. L3, who is Lando's uh, navigator droid slash arguable romantic partner of the film. Yeah, friends of um, benefits, I guess. Yeah, it's so it's so weird. Okay, so w- one of the one of the things about Star Wars is like it, it runs on a number of genre conventions. It it is science fantasy that borrows liberally from both sci-fi and from fantasy and from his- history and from like all, all all these different like wells that it dips into. But the idea of like droids in like oh like are are they sentient do they have rights like like should we treat them with respect should they have personal freedom do they fuck do they fuck yeah the, this this movie is not equipped to handle those kind of questions but it still dips into that with L3 cuz L3 first of all L3 is presented like 
L3 has a female presenting personality uh, identity, which which is really the first time in Star Wars that we see anything like that, as as far as like as far as I'm aware, like like explicitly on on screen. And so L3 is, is unique in that way. L3 is like a droid abolitionist. L3 has like a unique abrasive personality. L3 is like a, a really gifted like prodigy navigator through hyperspace and L3 has basically a sexual relationship with Lando which which they allude to um so we like we have like this weird ass grab bag of of like traits and, and attributes and it's shoved into this one character that is on screen for like half an hour before before she's killed off oh if that i mean yeah. maybe 15 minutes and, and like the the idea of the respect and the integrity and the sentience of Star Wars droids is a fascinating story. It, it could be a fascinating story, but I, I don't I don't know why they tried to add that little bit to to this to this one tertiary character. Yeah, I want to say that this is definitely a function of like uh, Lord and Miller, uh, Christopher Lord and Phil Miller, or yeah. I don't know, fuck, I don't know what their names are, but um, and then like uh, Ron Howard takes over and he's like super uncomfortable with all of this. Like that's how I <laughs> yes. imagine it, you know, like the irreverence of, of oh, Lord and Miller just being like, what? Yeah. It, it, the it fucks Lando. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> like is is like midwestern sensibilities i think that's where he's from like or just like yeah. he's like oh my god i don't i i don't can can someone else direct this scene for me um but yeah it's it is really um quite the quite the grab bag of attributes um some some more successful than others honestly i you know some of the sexual stuff like it's it it is it can be some, odd. <laughs> uh, it's mostly odd, honestly. It's it's some of it's interesting and like you know it's it's funny and um, it it's um, it it's never like the butt of a joke or anything. It's um, it would be fascinating if they delve deeper into that. There is, of course, um, a female presenting droid from the expanded universe that would meet in Jabba's palace, EV ninety nine, the torture droid in Jabba's palace, the one that like. You are a particle droid. Are you not? You know when C three PO and R two D two are like going to Jabba's dungeon. Uh, yeah, sure, I remember. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Sure. <laughs> so, we see EV ninety nine for like two minutes of screen time, but in the expanded universe, um, EV ninety nine has like a glitch in her her droid brain that makes her derive sadistic sexual gratification from the torture of other droids wow yeah so like so she's like a dominatrix droid basically so like the idea of female presenting droids and the idea of droids having sexuality is is not unprecedented in star wars but um it should not have been a part of solo story yeah i think that's fair um Honestly, like, uh, it just seems like a, a lot of this character, um, be it, you know, um, as you said, like droid abolition or the, you know, droids as slaves and the abolition of that or um, the, you know, droid sexuality. Like, it just seems like all of this stuff is more novelistic and it makes more sense much, in expanded so. universe novels. Um, but 
and it could like literally be a whole film in and of itself. Some of these themes. Um, when we get to Kessel, um, they, they have to, uh, pretend that Han and Chewie are, are prisoners, uh, to be, um, you know, become slaves. Um, they, um, Kira has to pretend to be somebody else because the owners of the Kessel's slave mine, um, do business with Crimson Dawn. So like she can't present as a Crimson Dawn acolyte or else that would mess up the business. Yeah. They, that, that's explicitly why, um, Beckett and Han are sent because they, they, they don't have a, a, a strong connection to Crimson Dawn. So they, they can plausibly be like just farming out work on their own. Yeah. So, um, shit goes south, but, um, con- in a controlled environment that they wanted, basically like they, they make it so that everybody just starts shooting each other. Yeah. They, they get a little Antifa. They, they free <laughs> slaves, they free droids. They, they free indentured servants. They, they kill slave owners. Um, I mean, it's, it's not like what they're, what they plan to do, but like as a happy accident of getting the coaxium, they happen to kill a few slavers and they happen to free a few slaves. So like, Hey, that's dirtbag lefty. Yeah, um, and then uh, the droid lady like starts a a robot rebellion, or she just starts yelling about a robot rebellion. It's not so much a robot rebellion as just like an all out slave mutiny. She she specifically, in on screen, takes off the restraining bolt of one droid, right? And then she's like, "Go!" She's like, "I don't know, like, what are you talking about?" Because because it's like an R two unit that can't speak English. And so when she speaks back to it, she's like, oh, I don't know. Why, why are you asking me what to do? Like, go go free some other droids. Go take some other restraining bolts off. And then it goes to take other restraining bolts off. And the droids that it, the droids that it frees go free other droids and go free other droids. And, like, that's, that, that's what kicks off the whole rebellion. Yeah. And, so. and that, from a plot point perspective, that might be why she was given, like, the, the character trait of, like, droid abolitionist. So like this rebellion could be kicked off, but I, I don't know. It, it still feels out of place, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's totally out of place, but because it is, you know, um, the way to get from point A to point B, point B being like a, a full slave mutiny, I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, it was, again, it was one of the, the points in the movie. Uh, when I first saw it, I perked up and I was like, holy shit, like this is really yeah. awesome. Like we don't see yeah. this in star Wars movies ever proles like proles fucking owning people is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like Chewie sees some other Wookiees slaves being beaten. So he goes to save them. And then Han, he, he comes and helps Han and like, they're literally, you, you see like enslaved workers, like ripping off their chains and, and killing their slave masters. And I think solo is arguably the most leftist star Wars movie. <laughs> that we have. Oh yeah. By far. Honestly, like I know yeah. a lot of people were saying stuff um, about Rogue One being somewhat like leftist because it is like a ragtag band of like farm people and like people in rural areas, basically. And I would say it is just not to the to the degree that this is, because this movie really captures like the freewheeling kind of like scummy dirtbag living by the edge of your teeth, but still doing what, what good you can. Uh, spirit of like 
anti-authoritarian leftism. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's correct. Um, so yeah, from Kessel, they do the Kessel run, which if you've seen a star Wars movie, that makes sense to you. If you haven't, (laughs) it's like just from Kessel to, is it to the planet Savarine? Is that like it? No. So, so originally the Kessel, originally Kessel was like in the expanding universe. It it was a mineral rich planetoid in the center of a bunch of uh, black holes. And, and to get to do the Kessel run was to take the most direct route, the fastest route through the black holes, cutting down on your distance as much as possible without getting stuck into a black hole. In, in this adaptation, um, the Disney version, Kessel is a planet in the middle of like a nebula that has like the swirling maelstrom of like energy storms and, and Lovecraftian cryptid monsters that are like the size of moons and stuff. And um, I'm, I'm still a little unsure of like what the Kessel Run means. I, I, I think it's still similar to the black hole theory. It's like to cut through the nebula in the shortest distance, therefore means the, the, the quickest route. But the, the, there are just so many elements and it works. It's really cool. But like there, it's like an asteroid field and there's like an ice storm and there's like a Cthulhu monster and there's like a, a singularity black hole in the middle of it all. Um, and then there's a Star Destroyer as well with TIE Fighters. Right, right. Um, it, it's, it's the the only way in or out, the, the only safe way in or out is controlled by the Empire. It kind of reminded me of like, almost like the Odyssey. Like, oh, there's, there's Cilia on your left, there's Charybdis on your right, and like you have to just, you have to go through these dangerous waters and there, there are myriad dangers and the, like the, the dashing heroes kind of cutting their way through everything. Um, but yeah, th- this whole sequence is really cool. Like it, it shows... Um, it shows Han and Chewie like their their strengths and how they become more of a how they grow as a bond. It shows um, the dangers of space travel. Like there's this one shot after Han loses the Tie Fighters in the Maelstrom, where he's like traveling through like this vo- like it it's this long it's it's this really far away shot of the Falcon traveling through like the void of space with no stars. And just the, the, the lights from the Falcon kind of like drifting through. And it's so tiny. And you kind of see the hint of this giant tentacled monster. Like just, just beyond the edges of what you can see. And the idea of space travel as terrifying isn't... It, it doesn't come up in Star Wars like at all before this. But it, it really got to me in that scene. So the whole group, um, they, they escape from the Lovecraft monster. They trick it to falling into the, to the black hole. And they do escape, and they do make the Kessel Run in under 12 parsecs, which is a unit of distance and not time. And it kind of, in a very circuitous way, makes sense that it's a measure of distance and not time. But they they get to Savarine, where they had arranged to meet Dryden Voss. And um, they they do have a showdown with Envis Nest before that. Yeah, so as we mentioned uh, previously, the unrefined coaxium from the Kessel's base mines uh, is refined here on Savarine. There are these indigenous people who can refine coaxium. And uh, as Han, Chewie, Lando, Kira, and Beckett are are getting their coaxium refined, uh, Infant's Nest and the Marauders come uh, to, to stop them and... Um, what would be a showdown uh, actually um, 
kind of gets uh, flipped on its head here. Uh, Enfin's Nest, um, which I guess is really just like the leader of the group. That is, at first I thought that was like the name of the group, but Enfin's Nest is just the name of the leader. Um, uh, the, this character takes uh, their helmet off. It's revealed that she's a fairly young woman. Um, uh, interestingly enough, I think in earlier versions of the script, uh, this character is actually the uh, daughter of uh, Woody Harrelson, Beckett, and Dandy Newton Val. Um, <clears throat> but I think that was dropped somewhere along the way. There, there are hints of it still in the story, like Enfys, Enfys Nest mentions how she wishes her mother was proud of her, indicating that her mother died, which could be anything, but Val died early in the film. And obviously Beckett and Enfys Nest have some kind of troubled history. So the pieces are there if if it had been part of the original script. Yeah. So um, Enfys Nest and the Marauders um, uh, are an interesting group because the Marauders and Enfys Nest are all from like different planets, basically. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, I assume Enfys Nest is from Vambor 1, um, but the other... Um, uh, people who make up the Marauders or the other aliens, because actually most of them are are, are aliens. Um, there's a Rodian like Greedo. Yeah, there's a Rodian like Greedo. Um, the only other like humanoid is is actually played by Warwick Davis. Yeah, uh, who had previously um, played as one of the Ewoks. Wicket, the main Ewok. Wicket, the main Ewok. Um, this is his only speaking role. <laughs> in any Star Wars. In any Star he, Wars. He, he's been in like a bunch of the prequels too, but he, he was just like a walk-on part. It was never... Th- this is his first speaking role. Yeah, he's always in background shots basically, but he's he's uh, one of the Marauders. He has this gigantic gun that he holds, like this giant like <laughs> rocket launcher. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but basically, uh, the, the Marauders are all made up of different aliens from different planets that have been um, colonized by the empire um, that have been destroyed or um, at least their like environments destroyed um, by the empire. They, uh, they mention how um, basically this coaxium, if given to uh, Voss will be used either by uh, Crimson Dawn or by the Empire to, you know, um, further um, their exploits in extraction capitalism. I mean, that's really what yeah. it comes down to. Um, yeah. She she says she basically says that uh, in 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 not those uh, specific terms, but uh, this uh, the story of these um, marauders is is basically a revenge tale. Um, this uh, anti colonial revenge tale of uh, of getting back at uh, capitalist fascists and uh, taking taking back what has been taken from you, be it um, capital or you know just uh, just fucking murking assholes. Yeah, they're they're literally an intergalactic, interspecies kind of like coalition of, of anti-fascist uh, fighters. They they're resisting the empire. They're resisting uh, predatory, capitalist-driven, organized crime. Um, they they don't care where you're from. They don't care what your species are. They 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 recognize that the the bonds of comradeship are are forged. In, in the fire of struggle. And I don't know, it, it's one of the cooler Star Wars factions um, 
unfortunately that we're never going to see again in any film or whatever, but like it, it's a, it's a really cool faction, like a, a swoop gang an an anti-fascist swoop gang resisting all forms of oppression is, um, is a cool group of people to be with. And to put my uh, pseudo historian hat back on here, uh, it <laughs> is actually, <laughs> it's like the international brigades, uh, during the Spanish civil war. Hell yeah. Like the Lincoln brigade and all the other, um, you know, the international brigades that, um, that came from far and wide. I mean, they came from Ireland, uh, Italy. I mean, you, you name it. And they came to Spain to fight, uh, Franco's forces. So yeah. And Fist Nest appeals to, to Han and, and Beckett. Beckett of course takes off. He's like, this is bullshit. But Han, Chewie and Kira resolve to, um, to help out Enfys against Voss. And when, when Voss in his, his really cool kind of like art deco, um, pleasure luxury yacht, uh, swoops into town, Han, Chewie, and Kira go aboard and they attempt to double cross him. But then they found they find out that Beckett had double crossed them to Voss. Um, but then we find out that Han, Kira, and Chewie had organized for Envis to kill or capture Voss's security team who had gone to kill them. And then Beckett double crosses Voss and pulls a gun and kills the remaining security troops and takes a coaxium with him, leaving Han, Kira, and Voss to have a three-way face-off. Actually, they just have a three-way. They just fuck. That's that's how this movie ends. There's a lot of important <laughs> really weird, but they just fuck. <laughs> yeah. The final fight is cool. I like I like how personal and intimate it is. Like like it, it's not like the galaxy is at stake or anything. It's just like this showdown between people who hate each other. Yeah, it is. It's interesting, and it's it's Kira, um, you know, gaining some sense of independence as well. I guess because yeah. she is indebted to uh, to Voss, uh, as we said in some respect. Um, she mentions this like she's not a good person. She's done bad things. Um, and then I guess maybe to get out of, you know, the, the hell that was Corellia or, you know, to get out of some other debacle she was in, she becomes indebted to Dryden Voss. One can glean from, um, just some, some lines of dialogue. So, uh, yeah, she just like, she gets to murk him straight up. Uh, it's actually interesting. So like he, they're doing, um, just crossing swords. Well, she has a sword and he has like these, like, like, I don't know plasma daggers or something shuriken yeah they're they're pretty cool um so he's like cutting down in the middle of her blade um but she's able to jerk it away from him uh with his dagger still in the middle of her blade and then like she stabs him with his own weapon while it's attached to her weapon she she is a practitioner of uh um, which is metal fist. Uh, it's a it's it's a fighting style. There was this crappy PlayStation One game called Masters of Terrascasi. It was a side uh, a standard kind of fighting game of the Star Wars characters, and it was it was dog shit. But the the term Terrascasi was cool enough to make it into Star Wars Galaxies, which was the first MMO for Star Wars, and then um, it kind of filtered into the rest of the expanded universe from there. Um, but it was just another cool expanding universe thing to, uh, to see depicted on screen. I wish you could all see my face <laughs> during I that. Wish, <laughs> I wish you could see his face right now too. <laughs> oh, 
Oh my god. Look, I'm sorry that I'm a better, I'm more of a cinephile than you. I, I, I don't pay attention to the details in movies. Oh, yeah, that is, um, yep. That is, if, that, if you get one thing out of this episode, it's that big. It's the better cinephile. So, yeah, um, Voss is dispatched, um, and Kira and Han embrace for a final time, and she's like, go after. Go after Chewbacca. He needs you, and go after Beckett because, like, he he has your coaxium that you've earned. And Han's like, "Okay, like, I'll come right back, and we'll, we'll buy that ship, and we'll we'll fly it out of here, just like from Curlia." And the second he leaves, it's kind of funny. Like the second he leaves, like this this her face kind of just like falls, and she like turns around, and and she takes off, and she leaves him. Um, Han Han catches up with Beckett, and he kills Beckett because Beckett was going to shoot him. And Beckett's like, oh, I try to tell you that you never trust anyone. Like, you expect that everyone will double-cross you. And then in the background, we see Voss's pleasure ship take off because Kira takes off and leaves Han. We should say also that I think um, the reason why this this scene plays out the way it does is because it's uh, it's like the Han shot first thing. Like yes. Because Han, mid-sentence, mid-Beckett, like, doing his, you know, dastardly, you know, evil guy speech, Mm -hmm. uh, Han just shoots him through the heart. Um, So I think it is kind of trying to put uh, an end to the notion that, you know, Han wouldn't shoot first as as his, you know, re-established in the the re-edit of the, the originals and then... Technically, it shouldn't be Han shot first. It should be Han's the only one who shot. Right. Because in the original cut, Greedo... Oh, God. So, the fucking... <sighs> the Star Wars Expanding Universe... Uh, or, uh, the Star Wars Special Edition, when they re-released A New Hope, they, they added an edit in which Greedo, the bounty hunter who tries to capture Han, uh, shoots at Han first, and Han dodges the shot and Han shoots Greedo instead. And it's really crappy, and it's emblematic of all the bad things of the Star Wars Special Edition. Um, and so that's where the meme Han shot first came from, and that's what they're playing into with this whole Han shooting Beckett first. Right, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, you know, it's it's strange that it, it they even re-edit that, you know, like um, just to make Han, I guess, a more, like, admirable character. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's like we're, less less bloodthirsty and yeah. less, but it's it's so dumb. It's it's so dumb, and it's like it's just like we're not we're not in like you know we're not making films in like the late thirties and forties. Like you don't have to have like a code of conduct for your characters. But I guess because this is when the films are re-released and they know these films are going to be seen mostly by children. So, you know, the kind of like nine. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a nineties bullshit, right? Like it's like, it's, it's the nineties whitewashing everything more or less. I, I can see that. And also we, we are George Lucas stands here at ProCon. Um, We're, we're definitely going to get into that in in the, in the prequel episodes that we have planned. Spoiler alert. But, um, (laughs) He he does have an unfortunate tendency to endlessly tweak and endlessly go back onto his previous material and just like work it over and work it over and work it over over and over and over again. Yeah, definitely. But I think it all, I think it just like it makes sense as to why 
it was it was done the first time, right? Because I mean, like he has gone back um, to re-edit the prequels, which like makes even less sense to me. But if you're if you're re-editing films from the '70s and '80s for like a younger '90s audience, um, given like the climate, you know, the, the, of the '90s. Um, it makes sense, you know, he adds in CGI creatures, just as CGI is becoming more popular. Um, He makes stuff like, you know, Han's uh, ruthlessness, you know, more tempered. Um, Not excusing it, it's just like, it it just, it makes sense to me. But then like, him redoing the prequels, just like the dumbest shit in the world. I mean, I guess it's because people were so mad at certain aspects of the prequels, but like he doesn't, it's not like he erases Jar Jar. He just like makes Yoda CGI. That was done for the DVD re-releases in in the original release, in in the original theatrical release and in the original DVD and VHS release of episode one. Yoda's still a puppet. Later on, subsequent releases, Yoda is replaced. The puppet Yoda is replaced as a CGI, which is stupid, but... Yeah, it's the... It's the it's the choices that choices like that that make no sense to me. Like I, yeah. I can kind of understand and yeah. the choices he makes in the nineties kind of track with the nineties. Okay. Yeah. But like, I'm, I'm on board with this. Yeah. That makes sense. But like making a CGI Yoda for episode one, the 10 minutes that Yoda's in episode one. It's like, I don't, I don't get it. Now I haven't seen the DVDs. I don't know if he's made other changes. I'm sure that God, we could go on Wikipedia and like find all the changes, but like, I'm sure there were like dozens of like tiny changes that haven't made, but who, who the fuck knows? Yeah. Who the fuck knows? Uh, who the fuck cares? I guess we'll have to talk about these in later episodes. Oh my God. Yeah. Save it, <laughs> save it for the, save it for the rest of the month. Um, so yeah, um, that's how, that's kind of how the movie, that's kind of how the movie ends. Like Kira, Kira takes off and, and Han and Chewie. Oh shit. No, it. there's the big thing. In this oh, scene. Oh my god. Oh shit. How could we almost forget that? Jesus. We forget the the other dumbest part of this movie. Um I actually I'm gonna defend it, but you can say it. Okay, not dumb, but the other weird part of this movie. So after Kira takes off and leaves Han behind, she gets onto the hollow net and calls um the true man behind the man, the true uh boss the the like the the power behind the throne of Crimson Dawn, which is wait for it, Darth Maul of formerly a, a formerly the Sith apprentice, um, seen in episode one, who had been killed by Obi Wan or so we thought, and gained a pair of metal legs, and um, Darth Maul has shown up in in the Clone Wars TV show. He has also shown up in the Rebels TV show. Um, and he has his own little arc there, and he has a lot going on as, like, an ex-Sith who's like, has a grudge against the Jedi and the Sith. But, um, apparently, yeah, he, he is in control of, like, the Star Wars Mafia, um, in, in the, in, in this section of the galaxy, at least. So, it's confirmed that Darth Maul is Italian. Darth Maul? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. it's also interesting... Uh, that you know he he's he's resurrected um, in this film and as you said previously in uh, in the um, in the Clone Wars uh, cartoon um, and in comic books um, with metal legs. Um, so one could assume that 
basically you can see was he was bisected at the waist um that everything below the waist is is metal and robotic so i actually think the uh uh leet robot uh le uh 37 robot and the whole like you know robot sex with people thing was a setup for uh darth oh, maul's spin-off God. movie where darth maul just has sex the whole time okay yeah well i still disagree that's canonical now <laughs> this was dumb <laughs> It, it was just weird. Like, th- this would have been the only Star Wars movie without a lightsaber if they didn't have Darth Maul on hologram waving his lightsaber around. Yeah, like, like I, I think that's one of the only reasons they had him in this movie. His lightsaber is weird too. It has like it looks like it has like this um like this banana clip. Do you want me to tell you to... What the reason why it's like that? <sighs> yeah, tell me why. Because I just like thought of an AK forty seven the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, because it's an AK-47. No, um, when he's introduced in the Clone War TV show, um, he's pretending to be, like, older, and he, he uses it like a cane. But then oh. he... It, it's like it's like the handle of a cane, basically. Oh, really? and, then, okay. and, then, and then he whips it open, and it's all, like, double-sided lightsaber, so... It's it's fucking stupid. Um, anyway, Han and Chewie, they find Lando... They track Lando down. I'm not sure what planet he's on, but they play a game of Sabacc, and Han shakes Lando's hand before they place it back, and so he he pickpockets his cheat card device off of him, so Lando can't cheat, and Han can win in a fair and square game, and that's how he wins a Falcon. Yep, and that's the last shot of the movie is just uh, you know the behind uh, the seats of uh, Han and Chewie as they go into hyperspace, uh, you know, yeah. in the Falcon, and uh, you know, roll credits. But yeah, so uh in a nutshell, that is uh that is a solo Star Wars story. It's um I can kind of get why it didn't really make a hit, like why it didn't really make an impact with audiences, um especially having watched it again for a second time. I I really do like this movie a lot. Yeah, same. I think any film that focuses on characters, you know, a solo outing, no pun intended, Uh, uh, for a character, (laughs) for a character from the original trilogy, um, it's going to get backlash. It's going to get hardcore fan hate. Um, It's going to have to also try to appeal to those people at the same time, which is, I think, as we said, um, the, the most detrimental aspects of this film. But they're, they're also some of the strongest aspects, like as a dead in the wool, Star Wars loser, like there were little things that I picked up on, like um, Dryden Voss eats caviar from a colo clawfish. And the colo clawfish is a random throwaway uh, alien beast seen in episode one. So like little contextual world building, like, I kind of hate that term world building, but like little contextual details that, that connect it to the wider uh, canvas of the Star Wars universe like that really helped make it feel like it belonged without being like beating you over the head with like clunky script writing. Right. So that's the interesting stuff, you know, that or um, the reference to um, the bounty hunter Bosk that they throw in um, the, the smaller, like you said, contextual, um textural elements basically um but then there's there's the obvious shit like oh here's beckett breaking down a blaster rifle to give han his you know his iconic blaster pistol 
Blast Tech DL44 and the Blast Tech Pistol. His DLC content that he, uh, <laughs> his, his loot box. <laughs> his loot box gun. Um, <laughs> he had to buy like a shit ton of them to get the right one. Something else I really liked about this movie and like, call me crazy, but all of the female characters are pretty, pretty strong and well-developed and like interesting people in their own right. Um, you have Val who is devoted to Beckett, of course, but like it not in a like subservient like fan servicey way and and she has her own agency and and when she dies it's on her own merit you have um you have Envis Nest who is like straight up Antifa who is like a freedom fighter and who is this fearsome warrior in command of like this roving band of like marauders which is badass and you have Kira who's um yeah like like Part of her backstory is that she's Han Solo's, like, former former girlfriend, love of his life. But, like, she breaks from that pretty strongly. Like, she, ha- she has her own ruthless ambition that she strives for at all costs. Yeah. She's a girl boss. And, <laughs> <laughs> and she leans in right into Darth Maul's double blade lightsaber. And she dies. That's also no. in the Darth Maul uh, spinoff. Um but no, I agree. I think um, even even Val, like I was, I was, I was thinking about it again after you know watching the second time, and I think it's it's it'd be unfair to say like she is fridged, you know, as we had mm-hmm. previously mentioned in I don't fucking know which episode, but you know the term fridging means the death of a female character to um, further you know the. Um, pathos of the male lead blah 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 um give him motivation yeah yeah i I honestly don't think that is what happens here like um or even a lot of times in crime flicks um where there is some kind of you know action set piece like the train heist um a female character will just die because they do something stupid um but she doesn't buck up here actually like um just no one really fucks up just like shit happens it gets complicated and she decides the best way to achieve their goal is for her to sacrifice herself so um yeah i think it's it's just um it's not your standard um plot beats for a female character yeah and um like it, like i was saying about kira um there, there are a couple ways you can interpret her her final character growth at the end of the movie um the the most the most uncharitable way arguably the, the broke way broke kira is um she abandons han to protect him from darth maul which is dumb i i, I don't agree with that reading but like you, you could say that she leaves han so that darth he, he doesn't have to get like caught up in the, in the in the wider world of like the greater criminal um underbelly um the better way that I, the way that i prefer to read it is she is just this ambitious character who had to make sacrifices and who had to uh do things that she never thought she could ever do in like in in terms of like crime and, and killing people and, and betraying people and she's just committed to that and um 
and she grows as an entity apart from Han. Yeah, I think her character is interesting because we always get um, kind of these talking points and think pieces about like, you know, badass, strong um, female characters, you know, who um, do things um, that men can do but better, um, or they assert themselves and they have agency. You know, this is kind of the talking points we have. But I think, um, and I cannot remember for the life of me, the author of this piece or um where this piece um was published but it was a a recent article about how we actually need um just more like complex female characters who have um their own failings um and strengths um more just well-rounded in general um and uh i think that's kira you know i don't think she's like a totally awful person which was also something that we saw in the mid 2000s with a lot of like female characters especially in indie films um the film young adult with uh charlie's theron comes to mind for me where like um people were just like yeah i can't i love seeing a female character uh, being able to be just like awful and terrible person and it's like I think we've gone past that now as well. So like uh, just yeah. uh, a complex rounded individual, uh, like uh, that is, um, that's Kira. And that is, I think what, um, you know, any, any character people write um, should strive for, but especially female characters, given the, um, you know, the, the history of, uh, of shitty female characters that mostly men have written like Joss Whedon. Fuck you, Joss. Fuck you, Joss. We're coming for your ass. <laughs> God. Um, so, uh, workers of note, we got a couple here. Um, I guess the first one, uh, this is an interesting entry because we don't actually have names for these workers, but we know they exist because this, this was one of the most infamous parts of the, of the troubled production for this film. Um, Alden Ehrenreich, he, he did a good job as Han. I, I thought he, he did a good job of of depicting of depicting Han Solo without doing a straight up Harrison Ford impersonation, but apparently, um, they had to call in acting coaches for him um, during production, which is a pretty bad sign for any movie usually. But um, whatever they did, they did it well. Yeah, and I should point out that um, it's actually not just that they brought in acting coaches for him, but it's um, the time of the principal photography in which they brought the, the acting coach in. And it was my understanding fairly late in the game. So to have an acting coach, um, is fairly normal, but to have an acting coach, like after two thirds of your movie is filmed, is like pretty fucking crazy. Right. I mean, it's probably why there's so many, right. It is a star (laughs) Wars. So it's, it's pretty wild. So kudos to, the acting coaches or coach. I'm not sure how many individuals because I can't find their names, but um, we also want to uh, shout out to John Powell who did the score for this film. Um, Um, It's, um, it's not an overtly star Wars esque score. Um, It definitely has uh, some of the star Wars themes throughout, as we mentioned, the Imperial March, um, also just like the main star Wars, um, theme, uh, is, is used during highlighted moments that call back to the original films. 
but uh yeah the the score itself that is new and original um is is good and uh especially the um the the theme for Enfant's Nest, the Enfant's Nest Suite, I think is what it's called on the, on the score, um, track. Uh, yeah, it's a, just a, it's a cool theme. It works. Um, also as I, th- I think it was a producer credit, um, uh, we have George Lucas who offered some kind of like script doctoring or, um, notes and just general all around advice. I, I don't know if he like did did kind of something similar i've heard the name before i think i think he did something similar for uh, the original trilogy and to a lesser extent the prequel trilogy but um he was there and as as a veteran of the series i i kind of want to to give a shout out to him yeah um, the dude seems like an enigma i don't know he's just yeah his name's all over this stuff um but yeah kudos to to mr mr lucas yeah and um the other the the other main uh area of work that we wanted to highlight was the puppeteering because as with all star wars um yes even the prequels as with all star wars um there were extensive uh puppets and animatronics and alien effects that we liked um so we have a number of names here in the puppeteering department we have derek arnold on creature and droid puppeteer we have william banyard creature and droid puppeteer Creature FX. We have Lauren Barand, Creature Puppeteer. Marcus Clark, Creature Creature Puppeteer, Creature FX. Patrick Comerford, Creature and Droid Puppeteer, Creature FX. Aiden Cook, Creature Performer slash Puppeteer. Damian Farrell, Creature and Droid Puppeteer. Barnaby Harrison, Creature Puppeteer in CFX Department. Claire Roy Harvey, Creature and Droid Puppeteer, James Henry Thomas, Creature and Droid Puppeteer, Charlotte Luis, again, Creature and Droid Puppeteer, Robert Nierney, Creature and Droid Puppeteer, Stephanie Silva, Helena Smee, Bone Stewart, Rebecca Van Cleve, all on Creature and Droid Puppeteer, along with Jimmy V, Andy Wareham, and uh, rounding out the Creature and Droid Puppeteers, we have Juan Alonso, Tom Bell, Michael Birch, Tony Christian, Tom Cotton, uh, not the uh, politician oh Tom Cotton. <laughs> not that birthday cake asshole. Theological <laughs> fascist fuck. <laughs> uh, Matthew Denton, David Foreman, Brian Herring. Paul Lowe, Ed Osmond, Hazit Savani, Sophie White, Tom Wilton, Ian White, and then um, Becky Henderson as assistant puppeteer. And uh, those last two, actually, Becky Henderson and Ian White, were uh, uncredited. So a special shout out to uncredited folk. So, uh, Nick, who would you recommend this film to? God, well, everyone, but besides that, <laughs> um, for our broke recommendation, I'd recommend Solo to uh, all the right-wing chuds out there who thought The Last Jedi was too feminist uh, because this movie has more and better female characters in it. Yep, that's true. Um, to trigger the chuds, uh, tell them to watch this movie. 
um, our woke recommendation is uh, for burned out Star Wars fans who want inspiration for their next uh, Star Wars RPG <laughs> campaign. Um, that exists, folks. I, I can't. I don't know what to tell you. Um, a number of them exist. A number of them exist. It, it's uh, it's interesting. The um, like, like licensed properties, RPGs. Um, a friend of mine was into like the Ghostbusters uh, one that existed Whoa. in like the nineties. Yeah, crazy. Okay, uh, he had to like find it online and then like download a PDF or something. But yeah, so. Um, this uh, this film plays out kind of like a D and D campaign. So there you are. Yeah, yeah, very much like a D and D campaign. And characters die halfway through, and they new characters come in as as the players take over for them. Kind of makes I can see it as a D and D campaign, honestly. Um, and our bespoke recommendation is for a very specific subset of millennial and Gen X nerds who want to recapture the spirit of the Han Solo adventure stories by Brian Daly. Um, as what's which, that <laughs> one of, of of which i am one um as i alluded to at the beginning of this episode or earlier in the episode rather um this this movie pulls very much from a number of expanded universe uh stories in 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 pieces um specifically from a number of uh stories that focus on han solo and yeah they're they're pretty the Star Wars Expanding Universe has a lot of crap, but the Star Wars Expanding Universe has a lot of hidden gems. Um, and when I say Expanding Universe, I mean the stuff that was declared no longer canon by Disney after they after they bought the property. Um, so it's this whole really expansive, really wild, and really creative um, extended universe out there for, for people who have too much time on their hands to dip into. All right, so that does it for our solo episode. Uh, join us next week for another Star Wars episode, and then after that, another Star Wars episode, and then after that, another Star Wars episode. Or join us in June for a non-Star Wars episode. It's up to you. <laughs> it's not up to you. Yeah, These are going to be the best fucking episodes of this podcast. This is what's going to put us on the map, and um, I, I am excited for the rest of Star Wars Month. Yeah. Uh, as am I. I uh, I might uh, play uh, otherwise uh, throughout, but I uh, I am genuinely excited for uh, it's all this it's venture. all nice, folks. It's all nice. <laughs> yep. All right. All right. See you next week. May the force be with you. Oh my god. <laughs>